Dexter Stucky presents Industry Friends. All right, guys, welcome to another edition of Industry Friends. I'm your host, Dexter C. Stucky. I have in the building today Mr. Andre Wise Davis. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you for having me. So can you explain what the WISE is? What does that stand for? It stands for With Youthful Zeal and Excellence. You came up with that by yourself? Uh, Yeah, well, my friends always told me that I was, like, wise, and I was spitting poems about, like, love and stuff like that real early. So um, they said WISE, and then I came up with the acronym after that. I just wanted to spell I wanted it to be different, so I spelled it different. Like with the Y? Right. Yeah. And then I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, what acronym could that be? And then it started to to come out because that's, that's what I always want people to perceive a uh, kind of like childlike curiosity and passion with what I do. Okay. So that's where it came about. I liked it. I like it. Tupac in the building, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I always start every show off with a personal story about how I know the person, if I do know them. And like I remember like our first meeting. The first time mm-hmm. we ever met, which you probably won't remember, but I definitely do. The first time we met was we were both trying out for Zion Fashion Club at Lincoln University. Right. And for me, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know why I'm here. But I was just trying to fill it out, like figure out like what college was and like what kind of different things I can get involved in. And I remember seeing you there and I was like, okay, like another guy is here because there was a bunch of girls there. And I was like, okay, there's another guy here. And then I'm like, okay, we could be cool. Oh, he's from Philadelphia. Okay, this is even better. Then you started to do it. I'm like, oh, he knows what he's doing. And I don't. <laughs> Never mind. Let's just leave that alone. <laughs> That's And that that was like our very first like like meeting. And then like I feel like we've been cool like ever since then. Yeah, I was in a sub, right? Yeah, it was in, in a sub, sub yep. hallway walking yep. down. I remember that. That it, was crazy. It was weird because I was like, this is such an awkward thing to just be walking up and down these this hallway. But like you being there, like it, it made it more comfortable because it wasn't just girls in high heels. It was right. like some some male energy in there too. And you know, uh, remember Linnell? Yes. So Linnell, I had met him on campus and he was like, you should model. And he was just like straight out with mm-hmm. it. And I was just like, ah, so they like bugged me and bugged me to come. And then I came, and the crazy part is they actually picked me to move forward, and I didn't. I was so – college was so different for me. I wasn't used to socializing at that level because mm-hmm. it was uh, – most of my, my communication was restricted when I was growing up. So it was like I was literally just there, and I could talk to anybody, and that was different for me. Yeah. And so to even be accepted into a group that outside of what I was used to was different. So it was like everything was so fast-paced when I got to college because everybody else was used to that freedom mm-hmm. that I just felt like I was moving super slow. So I ended up, like, drawing back from most of the experiences, even the poetry group. Like, yeah. I just kind of, like, I was like, mm, I want to go, but, like, that's a lot of it's, people. It's, not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned Linnell, too, because, like, he stayed next to me. His mm-hmm. dorm was next to mine. And, and, like, I was so passionate about getting into this whole thing, the, mm-hmm. the fashion modeling troupe, that I'm like, I had him training me. Right. Like teach me how to do this and whatever, right. and he trained me to do it. And, and I was gonna mention that, like, like I started it, I was doing it, and you weren't there, and I'm like, oh, um, I guess it's just me then. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I was like, right, because it came down time to it, and it was supposed to show up, and I was just like, I think I just didn't show up. College mm-hmm. was different, man. Like I had to that realizing that transitional period, like there was a lot that was going on mentally and emotionally with me, and I was legit figuring out who I was, mm-hmm. and then my environment shifted like that, and so it was a. It was like I was rattled, man. It was a lot of turbulence at that point in life. Yeah. So I was just like, I, I don't know. I was struggling to find the ground at that point. But it was the perfect place to be rattled. For sure. And reshaped. Because we talked about identity all the time. I'm being taught by black professors from black thought, black medicine, from Africa, Ghana. So it was like, it was the, now that I think back to it, I think it was a perfect place, like I said, for me to be, to 
discover who I really was. Gotcha. So I will always praise Lincoln, like good or bad, whatever my experience. I Same felt way. at the time. Same way. It's just like, <laughs> man, I needed that. <laughs> now, Andre, is his industry that he's in is a social entrepreneur. He's also the creator and founder of Humble Genius. When you say social entrepreneur, what is that? What does that mean? It basically means you create an, an enterprise to affect social change. Mm-hmm. Like you want to impact society in a positive way. So for me, uh, I, I always saw business, obviously, as a portal to freedom, but not just for myself, for other people as well, too. Okay. And so I just don't feel like I should acquire a bunch of anything without other people acquiring something as well. Mm-hmm. And then I also feel like in terms of education, I went to school, we went to school for however many years. You got K through 12, and then you got four years of college. I never felt like anybody taught me what I wanted to know. Wow. I never felt like anybody taught me information that immediately made me better upon receiving it mm-hmm. or opened a portal or a door or closed the loop. I never felt that. That's That was literally the point of this podcast. That's the reason why I wanted to do it because I never felt, but I, even on another level, I never felt anybody do that for me in the industry that I wanted to be in. Right. So it's just kind of like I'm just figuring stuff out on my own, which I think takes longer and you make more mistakes versus somebody just guiding you. I never right. had that guidance. So I think it's really cool that you're doing that. We were talking the other day and you said, one of the biggest things that you're doing right now is that you're coaching other people to to find their greatness, to find like what's good for them. And you shared a story, which I thought was fascinating about, and I, I guess I, I won't go into details just because I don't want to put anybody else's business out, <laughs> but you were talking about a person had an idea for a brand. Mm-hmm. And when you had the conversation with her, she decided, like she was thinking, I won't say small-minded, but she was thinking what she knew. There was no guidance there. And I think that right there is like where a lot of us feel. Right. Because we can only, if we if nobody else is guiding us, no one else is talking to us, we can only think what we know. We can only th- um, go back to our past experiences or people that we know. So I think it's honorable that you're doing that. I think it's amazing that you found an opportunity to do that. And when we were talking about Lincoln just now, you said that it was freedom. Mm-hmm. And from knowing your background, you were raised a Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. Now, how did that affect you like growing up and like transitioning into college and even to your career today? When I went to college, like it was to a point where, like the way that I had lived life, um, as a Jehovah's Witness, there were so many things that I couldn't do. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was a religion. You know, in religion they have rules and things like that. But it, in this particular religion, the rules are followed to a T. And if you don't, then there are consequences for those. Sometimes there's like, you know, uh, what is it a laissez-faire type of approach with religion, where it's like, okay, these are the rules, but like it's all right. Yeah, yeah. That's not the mentality that's had. You know what I mean? What kind it's of consequences? So, so I was disfellowshipped twice. Disfellowship means disassociated, which means that you are denounced as a member. So when you get of the bat- of the Jehovah's Witness organization, okay. So I was baptized at age fourteen. I did that. Um, acceptance and fear both played a role in it. There mm-hmm. were so many other young people that were getting in trouble and things like that, and I was just like, I just wanted my parents to look at me different than what they did. Okay. As I got older, I realized that they weren't looking at me any type of way. It was just the way that they that their minds and emotions were set up. So, like, as I understood them, it became less personal, right? But throughout that entire time of me being a Jehovah's Witness, I just kind of felt out of place. Like, I'm thinking different. I'm asking too many questions. And, like, but I was, I still had influence in that world Mm -hmm. because I was a kind person and because, like, of, you know, starting since I was three, I was articulate. I was passionate. So I had the characteristics and traits that they desired uh, or that kind of meshed with the community. Mm -hmm. 
But I also had this like rebellious streak of like, well, why? Or like, well, what's that? When you get like, older, start asking yeah. questions. Yeah. Now, are your parents or were your parents Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. And growing up, they were as well, like they were raised that way? Yep. They okay. were born Jehovah's Witnesses, the same, same as me. So like with you kind of like rebelling in a sense or having mm-hmm. those thoughts, like did that affect your relationship with them at all? Absolutely. So like my, um, my stepdad came into my life when I was about four and- we had a good relationship. Like, taught me how to ride a bike, tie my shoes and things like that. So he was he was very much so a staple in my life, right? Um, gave gave me an, a version of an archetype of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was appreciative because I didn't grow up absent of that. You know what I'm saying? But over time, his the way that we communicated wasn't the way that I communicate. What do you mean? So he ha- he has a a nonverbal way of communicating, not like abuse or anything, but it's like. He gives you that look. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like look. in position, like he imposes himself and it doesn't necessarily have to be physical, but after a while I wasn't afraid. Yeah. So it's like, it's like an intimidation, like tactic. Right. So when I'm younger coming up, it was different. It was like, cool. It was like, you know what I mean? And I always have respect. So no matter what, if he did give me that look, then it was like, okay, cool. Like I would make sure that I adjusted my behavior, adjusted, you know, what I did, adjusted who I talked to. And then as I got older, I started to want to make my own decisions and I'm coming into manhood. And what I felt was a battle between like being allowed to be a man and not, mm-hmm. or kind of like, you got to wait to be a man. That was kind of like the message I felt like I was getting. Now, mind you, I am a young teenage boy who's angry because I feel restricted. And so I began to lash out. So I talk, I do talk a lot about how my relationship with my parents from their side, but what I don't talk about a lot or I think enough sometimes is the type of person that I became as a result of being angry. So I became tough to deal with. I didn't listen. I'm like curfew, whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I doubt it. Like, so I began to get very disrespectful because I felt attacked. So it was just, a, it, it was like, it was wrong of me to do so looking back at it now, like I could have did it a different way. But even in terms of like that, that caused friction with my mom because my mom was always on my side. Okay. She always had my back. Naturally. Right. So like if I did something wrong, she would come to my back. He's upset because we had a tighter relationship. Obviously, yeah. like I even knew her four years longer. Like and that came from her <laughs> stomach. So it was, not, it was like it was like this battle that I always felt like I was pulling my mom away from her relationship. So after a while, I stopped pulling at it. Because I knew, like, she's married to this man. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And I still love him to death. Like, at the end of the day, like, he made sure I was always good. I never was hungry. I always had clean clothes on. So I was provided for. You know what I'm saying? Yes. A lot of the the, the frustration that I feel now is the fact that we don't talk. You know what I mean? Like You and your stepfather? For sure. Right. Okay. So, so as a man, when I started getting to those crucial points and I started becoming more stubborn and making more mistakes... I was doing it because I was resentful of the relationship that I didn't have. Got or it. I would just be like, I'm going to make this choice, and I didn't have anybody to consult mm-hmm. as a man that I was used to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it was just I didn't feel that connection with him as I got older. I felt more of like a riff because I, I don't. I still am trying to like maul through that piece because it's a place that I really have to heal because I don't I, – I'm uh, one of my, my close friends said to me once, uh, you can't love everybody and hate somebody. That's fair. And so when I heard that, I realized that I had hate in my heart for certain people because I was so disappointed. And then I started, like I said, going back and realizing like my actions and things. But like that being a Jehovah's Witness was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I was going to ask, did it did it do anything for your like career trajectory? Like, do you feel it like changed you in any type of ways that like led you to the path that you're on like currently? I talk about it all the time. I would not be who I am if I was not born a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. 
from the age of three, I was put in front of people to talk about one of the toughest subjects in the world, which is God. Yeah, because, you know, they say, like, you can't talk politics and religion. Not at all. Yeah. Strangers. So, like, I've been able to have these conversations from a peaceful place, but then also to be able to make a point and, like, to be able to, like, focus on how to process information, understand something that you don't really understand enough to even teach to somebody. From three, I was yeah. taught to have that mentality. So as I get older, I always take that. That's why I have a teacher's approach because I was kind of bred to be one through storytelling and things like that. My grandma was super devout. Like, I mean, like, she was one of the people that actually did follow every single <laughs> rule, every single yeah. guideline, gave out love, encouraged other people. And I spent a lot of time with her. And she was just so loving, like, I'm talking the type of woman like you walk in the house and Luther Vandross is blasting through the speakers and she just started dancing with you in the living room. <laughs> it was it that's the type of love that I was cultivated with. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So I didn't feel like anything was wrong at that point. It was only once I got old enough to start seeing how everybody else was living that I started comparing and it. And I'm just like questioning and everything. Yeah. I feel like I don't have freedom to do what normal kids do. Yeah. And so it was like because I felt that restriction, that's when I rebelled. So like disassociated at sixteen came back at 17 so I could have a graduation party with the only friends that I knew, only to realize my heart wasn't in it, get kicked out at 19, and then disassociated again when I was, like, 21. Wow. Only because they couldn't get me to, like, come sit down and have a meeting to yeah, discuss. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually glad, really glad you said that because when we talked previously, we talked about, like, the up-and-down effect that you mm -hmm. felt like you you were dealing with. And what you just said is kind of an example of that. Like, you, you're in, then you're out, then you're in, then you're out. And it's kind of like that whole up-and-down. Mm -hmm. And you recently uh, moved to California for a little bit, mm -hmm. and you, and that's where you you said you felt it the most, like the up-and-down? I would say that that's that I went to California to kill the up-and-down. Okay. Prior to, to, like, I didn't think that anything other, so until I was 26, I believe that being a Jehovah's Witness was the only thing that, that I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So everything else that I had done in opposition, I had guilt for. I was just like, man, like God's really going to punish me because I, I am not that. serving him the way that I was told to serve him because that was my belief system from the time I was born. Yeah, It took me until 26 to break free from that and really ask the right questions, break that archetype in my brain and start to rebuild, number one, my relationship with what is and to not necessarily decipher the the entity so much as the energy and the relationship that I can have. So I started praying from a different perspective. Start looking at mm -hmm. life through a different perspective. Stop beating myself up for past decisions from a different perspective. So it was like I wasn't mentally free mm -hmm. until 26. Up until that point, I felt like a rebel that was going to be punished by God for these thoughts and actions that I was partaking in. Wow. And so going to California was the, the catalyst point of, okay, I need my brain and heart to be reborn. I need to figure out who I am in an area that nobody knows me. I'm unfamiliar. I need to be like, I wanted to see my reflection in a new mirror. Mm. So going to California was really what did that for me. It allowed me to see myself from a different angle, see how other people perceive me, like just off the bat that didn't know me. And and that that was empowering because I got to, I got to be stripped all the way down to nothing mentally and emotionally. And then I got rebuilt while I was in Cali over a matter of 90 days. Wow. Wow, <laughs> I like that. Um, one of the things about you that I always notice is that, like, your Instagram. Like, when I look at it, like, I see exactly what a social entrepreneur is because, like, you're, you're, you're at TED Talks. You're you're filming things. You're doing – like, you're everywhere. <laughs> and it's like, how is this guy doing this? It's like it's He is one of the most exciting Instagram pages you guys will, will like, ever look. He posts, like, all the time. He's doing, like, poetry. He has reposts from other people. And it's just, like, one of those things where it's like – 
you're really living the high life. But like you feel like, or maybe you've noticed that what we see is not always 100% true. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you explain that? That's our generation. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I do my best not to make my Instagram a highlight reel. I try to have a balance between the highs and the lows. And and then that, even that middle point and the lessons that I learned from that. And I think that's that's really what I'm about. It's like I try to show everything. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I might fall too much to the low. Sometimes it might be too much to the high and out. But I just reevaluate myself over and over again. And my, my it's like I use the illustration of a plane, right? When you take off, you, you don't go too high and stay there at altitude. You can't go too high because there's not enough air there. Mm-hmm. You also can't fly too low because there's buildings that you will run into. You have to maintain the proper level of flight so that you're safe and that you can get to your destination. And that's what I feel like I try to portray through Instagram is just that I am a poet living a life that I would like to impact others. Here is my journey. This is me trying to be the best version of myself and help other people do the same. These are the things that I do to get there. These are the stories that I encounter. These are the stories that I live, the lessons that I learn. So for me, I had somebody ask me the other day, like, why do I share so much? I feel like I don't post enough, like, because most people are like, post six times a day and do all. I'm just, I try to post with purpose. If I don't have a story to tell, I'm not posting at all. So there might be five days where I don't post anything. But it's just like then we got to check your post. We have like, is Andre okay? Right, like he hasn't posted. And that, that happens, right? <laughs> so like, even from from December, I think it was like thirty first to like January seventh, I hadn't posted anything. So I started getting DMs like, "Hey, are you all right?" Like, "Hey, like we we kind of been waiting on a motivational <laughs> message." Like, I really and I have people posting their stories. Like, so Andre, I'm waiting on a video, and yeah. I'm just like, so to me, there's a responsibility once you step out and you say that you want to empower people, right? And then there's also, you know, me having to to regulate what I do put out into the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can, I think it's perceived as a highlight because I do what I want. Most people want the freedom to do what they want. I do what I want and I deal with the consequences. And then I speak about the consequences and lessons and the the rewards or accolades along the way. But I've always been that way. I've always been the type of person that only did what I wanted to do. And now, even as I get older, I'm learning to like, not think about what I want or don't want to do, but like what's right or wrong. But how do you find these opportunities, like with the TED Talk and everything? Oh, like, like where does this stuff come from? Do you have, like, a network that connects you with these people, or do you do it yourself? Like, how does this work? So so not a TED Talk yet, right? However, um, I, I did apply to the Temple one. that did, So cross your fingers for me. Like, fingers Temple, Temp, Temple's going through their, their thing right now. Um, so I've been applying for that, but I have spoken at places like Harvard, opened up for Damon John, spoken at South by Southwest. Um, how do you find those opportunities? These opportunities come because I just talk to people all the time. So I just, I don't know. I go outside and I say, my name is Andre. I do X, Y, Z. And the mm-hmm. people that I tend to run into, it's just, I don't know. I don't understand. But like, even like, so like, I'll give you a perfect scenario. So like the Gary V situation, mm-hmm. I had some work to do. So I stopped out of WeWork in Soho, New York, because I was going to go see a friend. I had a couple hours to kill. I stopped out of WeWork in Soho. I started doing some work. I'm sitting at the table, and then across the table, I hear this lady saying, like, oh, yeah, so we're doing this and this and this with the youth. We're doing graphic design and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, the youth, empowerment, you're talking my language. Yeah. And so, like, once we started a conversation, she told me she was a part of this organization. This organization helps underprivileged or underserved youth in New York become entrepreneurs. They just so happen to need a mentor, so I signed up to start being a mentor, come to find out. They're having an honorary event for one of the top entrepreneurs in the world, Gary V. So I'm like, what's his last name? Vaynerchuk. 
Every time I see it, I'm always like, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> right, right, yeah, Vaynerchuk, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, like, I I end up sitting there across from him, across from across from her. She ends up sending me an email. I signed up to be a mentor, and then I get into contact with the person who does all their marketing, and she's like, yeah, we're having this event. And I'm like, okay, somebody's filming that, right? You and said that like, you asked that? Yeah, I was like, somebody's filming that, right? And she was like, actually, we don't have anyone. And I was like, well, I mean, can I do that? Like, would, I, could, I could handle that for you. And she was like, yeah, we don't have a budget. I was like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Mind you, this was at a time where I did not have a home. Wait, what, what do you mean? Like, I was homeless at that point. So, like, I was couch surfing at that point. I didn't have anything. I was I, I took a mega bus to New York. That's why I was always on the move because it's like if you're not staying somewhere, you just you just keep moving. So oh. I go to different co-working spaces, different this, different that to do work. And then, you know, eventually I either hustle, get some money for Airbnb, or I go find a friend, crash. This was at that point, right? So at that point, I was trying to figure out where I was going to go. Wow. And so she was like, well, can, can you come up here? And I'm like, bet. I started scraping money together. Um, I called a, um, a buddy of mine that I partnered with. Um, for production whenever I have a project that's outside of my knowledge base. Mm-hmm. So I called him and was like, hey, listen, do you have a shooter on your team? I need somebody to go with me to New York. I'll pay for the Megabus ticket. I'll pay for the food, everything for that day. And they're going to get to meet Gary Vee. So he contacts one of his um, his um, videographers who's a huge fan of Gary Vee. That's the right. only payment he needed. He didn't even need anything yeah, else. Yeah. So I get us the Megabus tickets. We take the trip up there. We go. And I wasn't sure at this point if I was going to to interview Gary Vee. So I walked in, I'm, I'm capturing footage and stuff from the whole like aura and whatnot. And so then I walk over and they're like, hey, they introduced me to him. And they're like, hey, this is Gary. So I'm like, hey, Gary, how you doing? Da, 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 da. And so she's like, okay, cool. Uh, you're going to interview him now. You good? So I just. You did the interview with him? Yeah. Wow. So I just, so uh, I was just like, I just said yes. I didn't have any questions prepared because I didn't think that I was going to interview him. She told me it was, I probably wasn't going to happen. Right. So she asked me on spot, like, hey, you ready to interview Gary Vee right now? And I was like, absolutely. So I just went with it, right? Because I'm just like, I mean, it was a conversation. It's a conversation. Sat down. I think the first question I asked was like, how you feel being here? Like, it was just that. Like, mm-hmm. I went right into it with him. We had a conversation. The conversation was like 15 minutes. It was very dope. Like, it, you could feel that he's a very genuine person, and that he actually makes an effort to connect with you when he has a conversation. That's good. That's good. And that he's listening. And so, like, and he's very passionate. And then also, I just was asking questions. Like, it was a heavy time for me to just be like, I don't need to prove to him who I am. I'm going to just ask questions. Yeah. And the crazy part is that's what he complimented me on. He was like, you, you ask great questions, man. Like, I appreciate that. Because it was natural. Natural. Yeah. Just very conversational. And then I got up, and the guy that I brought with me, he was like, he said, I don't know how you did that, but you didn't flinch <laughs> at all. Wow. And I was just like, I don't know. There's a, there's always a zone that hits. Like, if you pay attention to me on stage or when I get anywhere, as soon as I get to the message – and I'm no longer thinking about me, something happens. That's how I know I'm supposed to do what I'm doing because this is not orchestrated. I don't script this. It's very tough. But as soon as my heart is sparked, the words just flow <laughs> every single time. I like that. And that's how I know. Like As I've gotten older, I've, I've, I've begun to, to keep saying thank you for that because what happens is I've gone through a lot of things in life and this is where the stay humble comes from because when I was not humble I crashed and burned every single time. I've been to this point that I'm at right now, mm-hmm. this incline, probably 3 or 4 times in my life. Every single time I let my ego get in the way. My message became to not let it get in the way. That's good. And so when I get to these peaks, these 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 highs, I tell myself to be thankful, be grateful, to ask for wisdom, to ask for patience. And that's I ask I literally ask for that, and then I'm given opportunities to like have that. So it's like, it feels like 
I have the steering wheel mm-hmm. and somebody else has the gas. Yeah. And I need to stay thankful for it to keep moving forward. Because they get to take their, their, their foot off the gas at any point. So that, and that, that is, that's one of those things that even put me on that path of like asking so many questions because I'm like, something in my heart tells me to do this and I'm being told to do this. So my heart can't be wrong. Mm. My heart can't be wrong. If, if what you're telling me feels awkward in comparison to what's in my mind and what's in my heart, there's no way that whoever created me wanted me to feel that type of, like, no, your thoughts don't matter. No, your heart doesn't matter. Like, no, swallow it. Just do what I told you to do. Just yeah. figure out who I am and keep telling people who I am. Rather than finding the highest version of myself to try to set an example for other people to do the same thing. I feel like it's, it's, it's more impactful for me to help you become the best version of yourself than to figure out the identity of the best version of whatever is out here in the universe. Mm-hmm. Like, don't get me wrong, you can try, but are our brains even capable of perceiving that? Or am I more capable of being a great person to lead other people in a great direction? So that's which, where I focus. Which is what you're doing currently. I, I, the, one of the main reasons I wanted you here is because like we were talking the other day, and I'm like, everything you're telling me is like is, is like genius. And you actually stepped out of the, the room at one point, and there was a guy that was like next to us, and he goes... I just want to record everything this guy was saying because, like, he was amazing. This, that, and the third. And I'm like, yeah, I want to record everything he's saying too. So let's just get him on the show. One of the things you said that day was you used to live for forty dollars. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that mean? I was always trying to save somebody. Mm-hmm. Always. So when I when I left Lincoln, uh, so I went. I had a, a a stint from Lincoln that I left and then came back. Ended up in a relationship. Ended up like she got in a tough situation and I put my neck on the line to basically like to make my life harder than what it was to go live in a place I didn't need to. So I asked my pop, could I live in one of his properties? Your stepfather or my biological father? Okay. Um, I asked him, could I live in one of his properties in Philly? It was in the hood. It was unfinished. It was tough, man. Like it was at like it's like like 17 from Russ going right. It's in the mud. Like <laughs> walk outside, step on crack vials. Gets in my car, people walking up to me like, yo, you so hard. Like, really? It, right. And I, my mom shielded me from most of that as I was coming up. She, yeah. she moved to Delaware, did everything she could to keep me in like a suburb type of setting. Um, so I went to school with people from the city, but I never experienced city life for the most part. I was shielded from it. So I'm now, what was I, like 24, stepping on crack bottles for the first time. Like, getting asked, do I sell, you know what I mean, whatever. And seeing like, like 10-year-old boys sell drugs at the park across the street. It was a, it was a, it was an environment that I was dropped into, right where I started to. I, I call it a blessing because I, I, at a adult age, I was able to start understanding how people in that environment function. Yes. So I got to see survival at the core. So when you wake up in the morning and you're trying to cover a meal for breakfast, maybe or like lunch, and then a meal for dinner. And you just want to smoke weed twice a day because that's what because <laughs> you want to you want to stifle stifle the pain you want to like suppress what you're feeling. I grew up in an, I mean I started to see an environment where that was a thought process, and because it was so dark, I experienced that same thought process. It was just like wow. I started to like get to the point where I just wanted to make fifty dollars a day so that I could eat and do what I wanted to do to kind of like suppress whatever that the pain I was going through because. The inside of the crib wasn't great, too. Like I said, it was unfinished. Like, I would lay down at night, and I could hear mice, like, running through the ceiling. At one point, the septic tank cut out, and then it was, like, stuff from the toilet coming up through the shower. It was, like, spiders everywhere, mice going in and out of shoes, couldn't leave a ketchup packet or nothing in there. Like, it was wild. So I'm just like, 
Wow. My entire life, I felt black, but like I didn't have the black experience. Like I didn't see the struggle that I felt like my people go through. And like did I you hear ne- about? Yeah, yeah. And I never felt motivated as a result. I felt like I was, because you know, like I grew up with, with, with some kids that, that was from the hood and then like I was always made fun of because I, you know what I mean? I articulated a certain way. I carried myself a certain way. I wore V-necks before it was cool. So it was little th- and clothes pink, that fit. Pink ones still. You feel me? Right. <laughs> pink, right. Pink V-necks. Like, so it was, it was different. And so to be in that environment, um, it just really changed my entire perspective. And to go through that, it really shifted uh, my emotional disposition because I started to see it. But what I realized, even looking back, whether it be the homeless situation, whether it be that situation, I manifested my struggles. Yeah. Because I wish that I had the struggle so that I would have the motivation because I never felt that. I never felt the push towards fulfillment because that came from largely like my mom or grandma or whoever being proud. So once that was gone, I felt no push. And I'm just like, well, maybe if I grew up poor, I would know what it was like to be yeah, hungry. That's true. Maybe if I grew up without anything or around neighborhoods where it was a bunch of drugs. I thought this from the time I was like 10. So then I'm now 25. I'm in this environment. I manifested it. You see it, yep. And all of a sudden, my mind starts to go there, and I realize, all right, cool. I got to get out of this environment as often as possible. I need to shift my mind, get around the right people. I was working at this job, ended up. Shifting gears, working at another job, then got laid off, and then a co-working space gave me a scholarship at 16th and Market on the 19th floor, fresh off being laid off, fresh off where I was living at. Mm -hmm. So my whole world got shifted. So that's you like moving up again, right? Like like, okay, right? Perceivably, yeah. Except I didn't have the knowledge necessary to maximize off of that environment. I didn't know that at the time. All I did was ever ask questions and just hang around people. So I've always absorbed information. So, like, I would just go to people like, this is my business plan. This is my business model. And they're like, that's not a business model. Like, you can't make money that way. Like, all I hear is that you're trying to change people's lives, but there's no product. There's no service. There's Mm. no this. There's no that. There's no monetization. There's no scalability. You have no structure. You have nothing in place that if you were gone tomorrow, that it can continue to thrive. So you don't have a business. You're just moving. Like, you have an idea. You got an idea. Wow. And you also haven't executed much on it. So, like, what's the tangibility? So, I went on a path. I started managing people's social media. Then I started creating content. Then I started pitching that I create content. I didn't know how to work a camera at all. I didn't even know how to make it. I was going to ask you with the Gary Vee situation, like, when you agreed to film it, like, did you know, like, how to use a camera? Were you familiar with it? Or was it just like, I'm just going to learn it? At that point, so that's also what happened in California. So in California, like I said, I literally had, I'll say, I think it was $147. So what I did was I had a gig in October that paid me more almost than I had made in the entire year, right, in a span of two days. I took that, paid off some back debt. As soon as they dropped the deposit, I booked the flight to Cali. It was like $101. I then booked a rental car for the time I was in L.A. because I knew it was too big, and I had an adjoining flight to San Francisco. So when I got there, I picked up the rental car. By the way, 30 minutes later, flat in the front right tire on that. Jesus. That was crazy, right? But I'm in Inglewood, staying with my friend. Stay with her for like a week. That was the only person that I knew. From there, once I went to San Francisco, I was at a hostel for three days. And I had no clue what I was going to be doing for that point. However, literally, the only thing that I had while I was in California to make money was my voice and my camera. The camera that I had just got three months prior from my pop storage uh, container because he wasn't using it. Mm-hmm. So I, I was... Familiar because for that entire year, I was around nothing but photographers and videographers. I was vaguely familiar. Okay. Then I started using it towards the end of the year just, you know, to capture little things. And so, like, 
because I had to survive off using my camera, like I got that's that's how I was able to pay for Airbnbs and like hotel tonight's while I was in Cali. Wow. I would find you know, different things like Marshawn Lynch had like a community event partnered with Baron Davis and they were looking for a videographer. Some girl that I met at an art show reposted it and sent it to me like, hey, they're looking for this. I sent the message. They said, yes, I met Marshawn Lynch. I met Baron Davis. Then I met Baron Davis's media team. His media team lives in Orange County. They're also the videographers for the Drew League, which is the top semi-pro basketball league in the United States. Met with them. I ended up, they invited me to their crib to film the celebrity basketball game for Baron Davis. I ended up staying with them for a month, then going back to East Bay because this lady saw me on Instagram and said, I've met you four <laughs> years ago at a networking event and I've been seeing you move and I saw you're in California. You might need a place to stay. You can come to my house. I live 15 minutes up the street from Marshawn Lynch. You can stay here as long as you need. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now, I feel like a lot of people don't get, I won't, I won't say lucky because it's not lucky, but I feel like a lot of people don't get the opportunities that you got Mm -hmm. and I think it has a lot to do with your mindset but I hear everyone say like I want to be an entrepreneur like I don't want to work for anybody else I want to be an entrepreneur so with that being said like what's next for you I think what's next for me is like I finally got to a place where I realized the the responsibility and the weight of being an entrepreneur Uh, before I think I focused more so on the freedom that being an entrepreneur gives you but but that freedom comes with the responsibility and so now that I feel like I thoroughly realized that and I realized that if I'm not creating a system that can thrive separate of my presence, then I'm not doing anything important at all. I'm just doing something that serves me and maybe a few people around me. Mm-hmm. What's next for me is literally empowering people to do the same thing that I'm trying to do while I'm doing it. And I know sometimes that sounds backwards because people are like they want to get there and then come back and get other people. But I'm just like, listen, if I'm building a system and a structure and people are curious about it, like, come join me. Now we are more powerful. This is a Justice League type of approach that I'm taking. What's next for me is continuously building what Humble Genius is, which is an educational platform to help people find their inner power Mm -hmm. and then give them somewhere to put it. So it's twofold, personal development, entrepreneurship. I feel like entrepreneurship is the best way to find out who you are. So the next step for me is really educating people on the different phases and the different builds of entrepreneurship or growing a brand because that's what I've been doing for the past four years. Right. So I want to help create more social entrepreneurs and help them broadcast their stories, help them figure out how to believe in themselves because that's it. The only thing anybody on this planet ever needs is for somebody to walk up to them and say, I see you, I believe in you, now go do it. Your heart is going to tell you what you need to do. The problem is most people don't have enough support Mm -hmm. to trust that voice that they already hear. So they start to let the voices that they hear from other people become overbearing. And so when you hear your voice in your head that says, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to change the world this way, you hear your mom's voice that says, go be a doctor, or your mom's voice that says, well, how are you going to make money doing that? Or, you know what I mean, whoever is around you that you trust that doesn't vocalize complete and total confidence in you Mm -hmm. is completely, they're hurting you. And they don't even see it either. They don't see it. And we don't see it. Because at the end of the day, they're not doing it on purpose. No. They're giving us their perspective, which we have to learn how to factor in. Like, okay, cool. That's how you see me, how you see my life moving. But these are my eyes. This is my heart. This is how I move. And that's the place that I had to get to with my mom. So I'll be darned if I can't do it with a stranger. It's like, mom, I love you to death, but this is how I'm supposed to move on this earth. And so my, my, my mom is like, love her to death, man. I really can't even like. I can't. I couldn't really dislike my mom if I tried. I would hope not. <laughs> no, like I really, I really couldn't, and I, I feel like sometimes I do a disservice of how I talk about it because sometimes I vocalize too much anger. But really, recently I've been just being thankful, like from the things she showed me, the foundation she built. Mm-hmm. That's a good end, place to be in, though. Yeah, like yeah. At the end of the day, like I'm gonna be mad at my mom because she wants me to like 
to, to serve a, a God and to to be honorable and to live forever, which is, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I can't be mad at that. That's her perspective, and that's how she feels like life is going to be happiest. But from my perspective, I've seen the results that has gotten her and people similar to her, and I'm not okay with that. So I have to be able to say, okay, I don't want that for my life. It's okay if you want it for yours. I support you. I love you, and this is where I'm at. That's fair. Now that I'm at that place of confidence where I don't, and because I was able to to stop the mentality of looking to her for approval, it helped me do that with everyone else. So I'm not looking for anybody for approval. I might ask you for feedback, but I don't need you to tell me that what I'm doing is right. Yeah, That's what sure. my, yeah. my heart says that. Mm-hmm. So like once I got free from the perspectives of others, all of a sudden it became like, okay, do I, am I proud of myself at the end of the day? Did I do and all that all I matters. could? Yeah. I want to teach people how to ask these questions, intertwine with the people that they love most, chase their dream, and still at the end of the day feel like they weren't robbed of their vision. I like feel that. like they were supported. I like that. Now, every show, I always end it with, because I feel like life is like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We all have different puzzle pieces that we stick together, and, and and we're all in different industries currently, but I feel like if we can all just grab a puzzle, write a message on there, and stick it on the wall of life, like that'll help the next generation. So if you had your puzzle piece and you had to write something on there, I think I already know what it is, but if you had a puzzle piece and you had to write something on there to give to someone who wants to be a social entrepreneur, what would you say? Normally it would be stay humble, right? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, normally. But but I feel like because people people see me and they say that, like, hey, you're the humble guy. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like they'll see me and upon like us leaving, they'll be like, stay humble. Like, And it's like I always – I think that it's amazing that it's thrown back at me. But now that I know that that's out there and like people get that, I want to give something different. Created a brand, though. Like that's right. a big deal. I, and, I, and I appreciate that. I feel like it's uh, – like I said, it's still a reminder to me. But because it because it is out there, right? I want to give a different message. I feel like I feel like on the puzzle piece, I would say you are the pot of gold. This is my favorite line lately. Okay. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know how you 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 travel this rainbow and you look for the pot of gold that's at the end. And and what I've realized each and every single time I hit a, a peak in my life, mm-hmm. I realized that I had what I needed all along. It was just me. And the only reason I didn't get there sooner was because I was fighting me. So if you realize that there is nothing in the world that can stand in your way if you're not in your way, Mm -hmm. and that if you're in your way, that everything else will stand in your way, that gives you an opportunity to blame those things, realize that you believing in yourself, supporting yourself, and and just cooperating with your greatness Mm -hmm. is the key. You're already great. As soon as you make that decision and you get out of your way, you're you're already in it. So there's no... I don't need accolades. I'm already, I'm already living it. I stopped doing that because once you once you seek that point and you tell yourself that that's the pot of gold you're trying to get to, like, what, you, you got to find another rainbow now. You got to do that. Like, <laughs> just understand yeah. that the rainbow's everywhere and you're the pot of gold. I like that. Just look up, basically, the rainbows around you. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Andre Wise Davis, one of, like, one of my favorite people. It's like, anytime I have a conversation with you, it, it always leaves me energized, inspired, like, ready to do more. I'm excited that we finally got this opportunity to sit down twice in one week, actually. Sit down, have a conversation with each other. Like, I'm really thankful for you and your friendship. Where can people find you? What are your social channels? Uh, so my social channels, uh, really Andre Wise on just about anything. So you can follow the, you can go to the website, humblegenius.org. Um, that's a platform that we're building uh, on Instagram, A-N-D-R-E-W-Y-Z-E. And it's the same on on Twitter as well, too. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another edition of Industry Friends. 
Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Industry Friends. I am the host, Dexter Stuckey. If you liked what you heard, do me a favor and rate the show. Subscribe to the show. Review the show. Repost the show. Please tell your friends about it. I really appreciate it. Industry Friends, your audio foot in the door. Industry Friends. Industry Friends. Industry Friends.